1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 22nd, 2021. I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. And before we get to our guests this week, I want to take a moment to thank those of you who make Talk Nerdy possible. And remember, there are a lot of ways to support the show. It, it is and will always be 100% free to download. And that's because of the support of individuals just like you. You can rate and review wherever you get your podcast. You can shop at the Talk Nerdy store. Or of course, you can join the Patreon gang at patreon.com slash talk nerdy. This week's top patron, patrons are Mary Neva, Michael Goucher, Brian Holden, Christopher Pitts, Daniel Lang, David J.E. Smith, Dudas Infinitas, June Sapara, Leonard Prince, Pasquale Gelati, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Scott Sanders, Ulrika Hagman, and, oh, Elise Christie, and... Robert Christ. Thank you all so, so very much. All right, let's talk about this week's show. I am thrilled because I was able to sit down with an old friend, Riley Black, to talk all about paleo. So Riley is kind of the queen of the paleo world. She has written so many interesting books written in stone, my beloved Brontosaurus, Skeleton Keys, and also is a freelance writer for a ton of publications. Um, from Nat Geo to Smithsonian, even writing for the Jurassic World franchise. And she spends quite a bit of time doing fieldwork herself and really digging deep into the history of, um, of organisms on this planet. So I'm thrilled that after several, several years, we were able to link back up. So without any further ado, here she is, Riley Black. Well, Riley, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me back. It's It's been a million years or 10 million years or something like oh that. Oh
1: my gosh, it's been so long. I mean, the last time that you were on the show was like, I don't even know, ages and ages ago. It was in person, right? We were able to record it face-to-face. It was. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I was going back and forth to LA quite a bit. So we did, yeah, we did it in person. I think it was like right around the time, like, I don't think my beloved Brontosaurus had just come out, but it was like within a year. so it must have been like six or so years ago i
1: guess you're right we were talking about my beloved brontosaurus and maybe what your next book was skeleton keys yes or is that the first yeah i think maybe we were talking about skeleton keys as if it were in in process
2: yeah i think i just signed the contract for that i thought i'm gonna have this done within a year and it took four years so amazing
1: (laughs) Amazing. And so where are you? I'm I'm looking now. Okay, here's your about page. Because I'm like, how many books have you freaking written, Riley? Like you're so prolific. Where, where are you at in terms of your career in terms of what you've been up to lately? Okay, so I'm seeing uh, my beloved brontosaurus written in stone. That was your first I'm seeing um, skeleton keys, like we mentioned, and I'm seeing all these really cool like kids books and kids projects that you've been working on.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like tattoos, right? Like I've accumulated so many that I kind of forget what's there and I need to stop and think. I think the count for books right now is at six and I'm working on seven and eight. Um, yeah, and I've done a couple of children's books. Those have been primarily work for hire stuff for the publishers. So says, like, we want someone to write about dinosaurs. Marley knows the stuff and I can just kind of do it relatively quickly. So the books for adults, the things like My Beloved Brontosaurus and Skeleton Keys, that's still of like what my passion projects are what i really love doing and then just on top of that continuing to freelance i'm still um working with the jurassic world franchise on their um, dino stuff so if you buy one of the dinosaur toys and you you know hit the qr code you open that up like whatever's written about that animal i gave them that information and wrote through that with them um i do a lot of writing for smithsonian and national geographic and slate and just as many different things as i can kind of get my paws on really (laughs) still Um, doing the freelance thing
1: i love that so much yeah i mean i know that um your byline comes up for me all the time almost any time that there's a, a new discovery or a new way to analyze or a new way to think about anything in the paleontological record i'm often seeing pieces that you've written and i'm wondering now I think a good question would be for, for those who remember the earlier um, episode with you, they may not be able to find it because at the time your name was not Riley Black. And so the byline has changed. And I know you for a while you were writing under kind of your pseudonym, right? Under Laylap.
2: That's right. Or at least that's how a lot of people knew me. That was the mm-hmm. blog title. And I just right, informally was got title. known as that. Yeah. Mm hmm
1: yeah but before you were writing under Brian Sweetek, which was your kind of your given name, your original um, born name, and that's now your dead name
2: right yeah it's it's been a really wild couple of years i I came out as trans in on Thanksgiving day of 2018 I think it was when I started wow, it's been report. that
1: long mm-hmm. well, that's, that's the weird incredible. thing
2: there's so many people I know, especially with the pandemic and everything, like you know, we basically lost. A year and I started transitioning the year before that. So now when I go back to academic conferences or if I meet people again, like I'm meeting them as a whole new person. So there are people that I talk to, you know, on a near daily basis that like I have not seen since I started taking estrogen. So this is going to be a very interesting year coming up after we all get our vaccines and start to come out again.
1: Right. And I mean, gosh, there's a million things that I want to parse out. But the first thing that even that comes up for me before we even get into, you know, um, a little bit about your history is within the paleontology community, clearly, you know, you're somebody who's been writing and and analyzing this work for basically it's been your career so you work very closely with academics you work very closely at conferences with paleontologists and let's be clear although there's some diversity although there are some women there're probably you know n- not nearly as many trans women um you're dealing with a lot of old white dudes how are they how open and receptive are they how understanding are they i mean how do you how do you even how do you not get down when you're meeting with people and kind of having to say yes, we met before. This is kind of, you know, I've got a new name. I, I, you know, this is my gender and, um, deal with it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and you don't need to kind of sugarcoat like we are not a very diverse field. We are lagging behind even, even other scientific disciplines. Like the number of paleontologists who are black is 1%, maybe even less than 1% of the field and oftentimes are not recognized. Many of them are working in Africa, like working on, you know, hominin fossil sites and stuff, and they never got the credit that they deserve. So this is still a huge thing. I think we're still fighting the fight to have just gender equity and equality between cisgender um, women in the rest of the field. So it's kind of like everybody else sometimes just a feeling kind of like, wait your turn. It's like no, no, no. We need to, like everybody in. Like we need everybody right now. So far... The reception from uh, my peers and colleagues and people that I talk to has been good. Like people who know me and have followed my work for a long time, like it—it it didn't skip a beat for them. Um, you know, I've heard a few people say that you know, like I remember who you were, but you see much more of yourself now. And that's always you're after going through so many these changes. Um, where I've run into not even pushback, but just like the weirdness. Of these things is you know I live in a red state I live in Salt Lake City in Utah most of the field work that I do is in relatively rural and relatively conservative areas and there are folks who are not all that happy that I'm around or assume especially this, this was true during the first year of my transition when I wasn't really presenting uh, differently yet and that was this whole own whole thing of trying to figure out how do I change my expression while I'm waiting for the hormones to work and everything else so like I didn't look all that different even though i was identifying differently. and the things that you overhear when people think you're not in the room basically can be pretty horrific or even dangerous and that's the part that gets me like i'm at the point where if a paleontologist doesn't want to talk to me because i'm trans or something like that it's like it's really their loss at this, yeah. at this point the only thing the only weird thing i actually had was with a um a science journalist uh Person went an editor at a magazine that I'd written for before, and this wasn't bad. It was just kind of strange to me because mm-hmm. I emailed them with a pitch for a story I wanted to write, and they turned the pitch down. They didn't think it was interesting enough, and they got an email back saying, "Like, by the way, like, what are your qualifications for writing about paleontology?" And I wrote, "This was someone who I worked with for a number of years, a number of stories. I was still using the same email address. that's installed my footer with all the books and everything else that so I wrote." And they just in it. So, uh,
1: look past yeah. your name.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> in a way, it's almost like I can imagine that that would be there would be ambivalent feelings that come with that, like frustration to be like, wait, what? But also kind of like, wow, they really see me as as kind of this new version, this new person. They they don't even remember who Brian Ctech yeah, was.
2: Yeah. And the strange part about that is, like, I put my pronouns in the footer in the of every email that I send. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty... Forthright about this, or at least pretty direct about the fact that, you know, I used to write under a different name. Cause that's part of the difficulty. Like, I, my book, I came out just before my book, Skeleton Keys, did. So I was kind of like, okay, how do I possibly navigate this? And sometimes I, I catch it because when people do email introductions, they're usually emailing somebody else um, about me. And that's where some of the misgendering and stuff slips in. It's often not intentional, but it's kind of like a look of like, okay, are people kind of, getting it or are they kind of stuck with the old vision and there are things like i'm sure some people on this podcast might notice. like i haven't changed my voice i haven't done vocal therapy so like anytime i pick up the phone for a story sometimes people don't know kind of who they're talking to or i get surred a lot so it's there's always a lot of explanation for this kind
1: of- right and i can imagine that <sighs> I mean, I'm wondering what it's like for you to feel that you constantly have to explain. Like, at at it, on one hand, maybe that's really empowering. On the other hand, does it ever get tiring?
2: It's really tiring. It's, it's tiring right now, especially in our current sort of political moment. Um, I think it's more like I try and play it off as much as I can. Uh, I think my pat response sometimes... When somebody asked me, like, like I, my car got ran into in a, in a parking lot the other day, so I had to take it to a place to get repaired. And I guess my registration had my dead name on it, and even though everything else had been updated. So I went to go into the garage to get my car repaired. They said, like, oh, are you Brian? And I said, well, I used to be, but I got better. And <laughs> like that, like, you, that helps a little bit and adds a little bit of levity. Because the thing that I found, like the weirdest thing to me about the reaction to transgender identities, right? And and this is something that, like, I've primarily experienced. I know it's different from many other people. But it's the primary reaction that I run into is not so much hate. It's annoyance. It's annoyance at this idea that, like, oh, now I got to ask about people's pronouns and their identities, and I got to keep this thing in my head. That's the thing. Like, more than anything else, just randomly, you know, some. I remember once I thanked somebody for gendering me correctly, and they're just like, "Yeah, just don't shove it down my throat or anything." And I'm like, "I'm not shoving anything down your throat. I'm just asking you to, you know, please use she/her." And that's yeah. About that.
1: Oh, it, it. I it it sounds to me like there's this there's this mentality. I mean, sounds to me. I, I've seen it. I know that it exists. Where where people almost feel like because of their privilege, like they're burdened by you know the existence like all you want all you're asking for is to be able to be yourself and for other people to not even necessarily agree not even like you not even want to be your friend but just acknowledge you acknowledge you as you are
2: yeah the way I describe it sometimes is like imagine if you had a nickname that you got in like elementary school that you really hated And, you know, since that time, I mean, you not only have your own name, but like, let's say change your name or something else. But imagine if people just kept calling you that name in perpetuity and you constantly had to correct them. It starts to wear away. You start like, is that my identity to everybody else? Like, why is this continuing? And that's the way that it kind of feels when this when this happens. And most of it's like I'm relatively... Loud, I'd say about my trans identity, like I, I write about, I wrote a piece for Slate recently, or I'm doing another one. Like I think that's really important because I'm fascinated with so many aspects of this the science and culture of it and all these different facets of it. But I think really, like what I would love most would be not having to do this, like not having to educate people and really dig into this, just kind of like exist. And I'm like, you know, Riley Black is a writer who happens to be trans. But I think especially now, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse in that, like, it's great to talk about my experience, my identity, and hope that that speaks to other people um, who need that encouragement right now. But the future I want to get to is where, you know, you just don't assume somebody's pronouns or you you just ask them or that becomes a normal part of the thing. And it's not like you don't feel like you're asking somebody to walk over broken glass to just call you by your preferred pronouns
1: yeah and you know i i feel in my heart of hearts like that is the future that will exist and part of it is a function of cultural recognition and cultural growth that we were seeing in survey data that you know millennials and younger are identifying as trans or identifying as non-binary in significantly higher numbers than boomers. And clearly, it's not that these individuals have, you know, like there are just more trans people now. It's that more trans people are able to say it and own it and come out with it and be, you know, less afraid or less. I mean, obviously, there's still so much violence and there's still so much retaliation, but there's strength in numbers, as we saw with the Me Too movement. It's not that those women were not being abused, they were just suffering in silence.
2: Yeah, and I wonder about that in terms of like when I came out and the fact that I have an entire cohort of friends who also are trans, who came out at about the same time. And how is this idea of generational turnover? Like, I feel like not that it's entirely bimodal, but that we have a lot of people who are coming out as trans and genderqueer and non-binary who are in Gen Z and, and, and below. But there's also a lot of people, I guess, on like the deeper end of the millennial pool like I am that are, you know, because, you know, our parents are boomers. And for us, we grew up seeing stuff like, you know, Maury episodes about sex change operations or like, you know, um, transgender people often like the butts of jokes on shows like, you know, The Critic and The Simpsons and stuff like that. It was just kind of everywhere. Like, I remember having feelings about this from about the age of 10 at least. But it was always like, well, I couldn't possibly do that. And if I do, like, people are going to think a whole bunch of terrible things about me. Like, it it wasn't safe to do that. So now through one way or another, that's becoming so much a part of the conversation. Like, yes, this is possible to do. Uh, I think it's really not only speaking to younger folks, but people who, like, felt like they had to go through so much of their life. when When it's like, actually, I don't have to do that anymore. And that's one of the awesome things I think about transitioning and about some aspects of medically transitioning that you can go through your second puberty at any time. Like you take these hormones and your body knows what to do with them, whether you're 15 or 50. And I think that's pretty, pretty rad from a biological standpoint.
1: That's so rad. And, you know, I'm glad that you bring up kind of the the medical transition side of it, because working within this sort of psychology world, um, Which is, you know, usually, well, I don't want to say usually, but at least, how do I say this? Working from a humanistic existential perspective, which does tend to be more pro-social, tends to be more social justice oriented. um, You know, I'm surrounded by incredible practitioners who are all about, you know, um, affirming identity. And I've seen a really significant change either, even within the medical establishment where, you know, something that used to be called a, quote, sex change operation or diagnostics that you sh- used to be kind of couched in terms of pathology, in terms of disorder, in terms of something being wrong, has is now being turned on its ear. And what we're talking about is gender affirming surgery. And we're talking about psychotherapy to help an individual discover their true selves and to live their best lives. And, you know, now is a time where, yes, there are places, there are corners of this country where that's not available to people. And it's it's infuriating and deeply saddening. Um, but I'm so thrilled to see that there are other corners of this country where that is becoming increasingly available.
2: Yeah. And I think some of the sort of volume that we're Hearing from transphobic sources now is because they kind of know that the writing is on the wall and that they're going to be made irrelevant. That this is, you know, especially living in Salt Lake, and the fact that like I'm kind of part of the counterculture here because we have something to push back against. And I think that's a similar effect that's that's going on just in the opposite direction, where that they can see how like you know the next generations like it's not going to be weird or unusual use they them pronouns or to consider puberty blockers or hormone replacement therapy these other things that are concepts of gender and what it means and bodily autonomy are going to rapidly change and a lot of the stuff like you know uh, abigail schreier who's written for the wall street journal wrote an awful book called irreversible damage basically um, saying how there's this epidemic of young women you know, rather than identifying as lesbians, they identify as trans instead. And it's just like, I think she testified like on the Hill today, like just spouting on the same kind of stuff.
1: Oh, and I saw that even, I just recently rewatched The L Word. And I remember one of the sentiments that you saw a lot around Max's character where was people coming up to him and saying things like, please don't do this. I, we're losing all of our butch women. And that there was yes. even within the lesbian community, this real pushback.
2: Oh, yeah. And, and that still exists. That's something that I've run into and a uh, former partner of mine ran into as well. Just like this idea of like, why can't you just be happy in the body that you have? Why do, why do you have to change? That is a loss to whatever community that you're a part of that, that you want to change. And it's kind of this, like deficit model of like gender and sexuality. It's just very strange to me. Right. And Instead of saying, of why is, can't we open the community up to accept all of us? Right. Or learn that just, like, the variation is the rule. Like, so much of this, it reminds me of, like, trying to put biology in boxes and saying, like, you know, there are men and there are women and gender relates to what your biological sex is and that relates to your sexuality. And it's, it's all connected, but it's very set. And this is what it is. And you need to pick these categories. And anything that was outside that, too, is, well, that's strange. That's that's odd. That needs a special explanation or your and I think it plays into some of this annoyance as well, like you're asking for special treatment or special care, or why should I pay for, you know, your sex change surgery Or is an argument that I've heard. And instead of realizing that maybe the variation is the message that, you know, biological sex is a real thing, but maybe just two bio- like binary biological sexes is not covering the reality of what it is to be human. And that we need to change our definition because I think people often forget, especially in this moment where science is so misused by some, that science is a process of understanding the world around us. There is a reality that we wish to understand, but reality and science are not synonymous with each other. Science is the process that and our ideas change, the labels we use change. We have this artifice and this edifice that's kind of built up to try and understand things, but that means that sometimes we have to change our definitions. Or say, like, okay, this, we have this whole group of people that don't fit in either of these categories. We need to change something. And I think that's the struggle that we're having, where it's like this argument from authority without questioning where that authority came from and why we're listening to it.
1: And how, how like stunning as an individual who works within paleontology and within this kind of evolutionary field of detective work that, you know, I, I recently had Lulu Miller on the show and we talked about her, her beautiful book, Why Fish Don't Exist. And and this very concept of like taxonomy is not is not a perfect science. And these are constructs. These are human invented constructs to try to make sense of of try to make order out of disorder. And the truth is, usually things that are ambiguous, usually things are somewhere in between. There's a lot of gray and why is it that we as human beings so desperately want to force people objects um experiences into categories instead of saying it's okay if we're not you know we don't fit in a box perfectly
2: yeah we we don't like mess <laughs> or at least we, <laughs> we call the mess we call, we call the mess outliers and then decide not to think about it but and and what i'm about to say i want to make it clear that i am not equating what Queer and transgender people are going through is the same as a historic racism that black people and many other cultures have gone through. But when I was writing skeleton keys, this point really struck me in terms of uh, scientific racism in the past that anthropology, for example, especially in America, during the 18th and 19th centuries, it began as a racial science, yeah in that Its main focus was there are five races." And that wasn't like we believe because we have gathered all these data. Like, that was just the belief that existed. Right, like that was the starting
1: point,
2: yeah. Right, and everything got shunted into one of those five boxes and then hierarchy started. And, you know, people started to come out with um, counter evidence to these categories that maybe they don't really exist, maybe they're not as sort of set in stone as people wanted to believe. And oddly enough, it was not the science that made the difference. It was the fact that World War II happened and people saw what nazi ideology did the, folk, the the fixation on race and hierarchy all the lives that were lost because of that and that is what kind of turned anthropology saying like oh no we don't want to be preoccupied with race anymore that this is a social construct and it's not a biological reality and if we go too far down that road it's going to cause a lot of harm and i think we're coming to a similar reckoning at least in the spirit of it, with gender and sexuality and biological sex and some of these things that we've taken for granted for a long time. That you know, this is kind of the way that it's always been done and always been categorized. But now we're questioning that, saying, is there a better way to understand this? And what is the social part of it and what's the scientific part of it? And oftentimes the biological part of it, the only people that that's relevant to are me, my doctor, and my partner. And that's it. Like what chromosomes or gametes or Hormone levels or whatever I have, that is not relevant to most of society as much as all these things are kind of put in the public diary. Right
1: oh, you're so right. Like just the obsessive focus on, like you mentioned, this very internal, you know, what gametes do I have? Where, What are my hormone, my blood hormone levels? But even on external kind of um, uh, phenotypic expression of gender is. Bananas to me, how much people are obsessed with like, what is, what isn't between one's legs? You know, kind of how are you wearing your body and how does that make me feel as a passerby? Like, it's bizarre because in the cis world, only when it comes to like, I don't know, overt sexual displays, only when it comes to dating or to pornography or to these kind of more private experiences is guys aren't asking each other about their dicks like it's just it's so (laughs) it's such a weird thing that there's this obsession with trans people's genitals
2: right and there are sort of two arguments on either side of that and depends on how which tact you want to take one is that well it really doesn't matter what like if if you you know care for someone you're attracted to somebody you know if you want to have sex with them, does it really matter like what exact configuration their genitals are in? Because we have a whole bunch of variation, even within like if we were to take the binary biological sexes as standard, there's a ton of variation there to start with. And even if we look to other forms of nature, we know that these are homologous parts. I love Emily Nagoski's phrase in uh, Come As You Are, that was primarily talking about cis women, but I think it applies more generally that these are the same parts just shaped in different. Yeah,
1: and you know, we see and that during reason, development. We see them yes. turn into or or move and morph in different ways, but the, the tissue is the same.
2: Yes, and, and we see this in other species. And for example, like I, I female spotted hyenas are a great example where they have a pseudopenis that's made out of the clitoris and they have what looks like a scrotum that's made out of the labia and stuff. And it, that happens because these are basically the same. And that's an example of these common developmental origins. And part of the reason that gender reassignment surgery or gender confirmation surgery works is because these are homologous parts. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about like, even though I really want people to get this from a human rights standpoint, I think we could do a lot better. It's educating everybody. This shouldn't just be something for trans people, for just everybody saying like, okay, you see these two shapes? They look very, very different. They're actually made of the same parts, just in slightly different shapes from each other. (laughs)
1: Right, but that also requires that people have an understanding about their own biology. And it's like, how tall in order is that really? I, I sometimes tell a story um, about when I had to go in for a biopsy, a cervical biopsy. And I was, um, you know, dating somebody at the time and I told them about how scared I was because it was my first ever cervical biopsy and y- they don't use anesthesia when they take these punch biopsies. And I remember just a bit of a callous response, a little bit of like like humor and just like somebody who clearly didn't understand what was going on. And then later when we talked about it, it became readily apparent to me that this person didn't really know what a cervix was. And once I started to describe exactly what was happening in the gynecologist's office, the empathy started to come out because they were like, holy shit, that's pretty traumatic. But it's like, until then, it was like, oh, your lady bits are getting poked. Okay. Like there's just a lack of basic understanding of our own biology.
2: Yeah, and that's something where I, I wrote a piece for Slate um, a week or so ago about using science is not always the most effective tool against transphobia because it's not coming from a scientific place. Like many of these people are the same people who, you know, are proposing creationist bills or don't agree that climate change is real. It's just it's just kind of convenient to use that authority. But the corollary to that is that it would probably benefit everybody to have a better understanding of human biology and anatomy and how these parts relate to each other and kind of end this, you know, well the girls report to the cafeteria and the boys report to the auditorium because they're going to watch a special movie, which is the (laughs) system that we basically and like that's all we get and you're kind of left on your own after that. With this right. assumption that you're going to know how these things work just because they're.
1: Oh, yeah, no, you're so, so right. And it's just personalizing ourselves, having a relationship with our own bodies, uh, you know, celebrating or at least at at the very least understanding the gray area and the sort of non-binary that does exist is is you're right, sorely lacking in basic education, but also just in our. In our social milieu, just talking about these things. But as you mentioned before, it is changing. I think younger people are, are and may, I mean, maybe it's only happening in the big cities. I don't know. But it does seem like there's, because of TikTok, because of Snapchat, because of the way that young people relate to each other on the internet, there's an expression and an exploration of the non binary that's really beautiful.
2: Yeah, it's amazing to see. I think that's. The wonderful thing about you know kind of our information age is that you can get information about just about any of these things that you want to know you know straight to your personal device. And like I remember, like as a kid, I wanted to learn about these things. I would probably have to go to the library and get a book and feel really nervous about that, and then take it home and you know hide the book under my pillow or whatever else. Like now, especially with the proliferation of you know smartphones and you know just the availability of how much there is, like. I wish that, you know, like my 12-year-old self could have gotten the education that I've gotten over the past couple of years and many of these things, like a lot more would have made sense. And I think that kind of openness of access and information is really making a huge difference.
1: Two things come up for me that I wanted to touch on before we maybe kind of um, move over into some, some paleo chat. Um, The first one that comes up for me is something you said earlier really resonated for me at a personal level when you were talking about sort of that there's this frustration of needing to educate, but at the same time understanding and and sort of being honored by that fact, knowing that we're just at a certain place in time. I often think about, you know, Black History Month. For women's history. And, you know, when when I get interviewed about things, for example, like uh International Day of the Woman and, and, and Girl, is that what it's called? Or, you know, International Women's Day, basically. And do you celebrate for International Women's Day? And I'm like, no. And why not? It, because it pisses me off that we have to have a day. Like, and I get, I get the necessity for it. And I feel like really close to to you know to all of the women in my life um and so as for example as a trans woman you have it doubly bad because you are identifying with this frustration that we women have together i mean that this idea that we have to have a fucking day because we're we're not the norm and the only way to really celebrate or move forward is to draw attention to those issues but then of course Trans understanding, trans appreciation is a layer on top of that. That yeah, I I I I want there to be a future where we don't have to have a fucking day because every day is our day.
2: Yeah. And like every day is Catterday, really. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. Um,
1: Can't we just all be cath Damn it. Ex- oh, that life <laughs> so
2: much better. But um Yeah, it's I try and think of those days like I wouldn't say that I celebrate them because part of it is just like I don't know how to. Do that other than just kind of being. Yeah. Um, I'll take my estrogen and you know, that's how I'll celebrate it, I'll light a candle. I don't know. Right. It's like um, I have but,
1: boobs. Like, what else can we really do? Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's like, yep, still grown. All right, we're yeah. good. Um but it, it's I think, and and that's the sort of I don't want to say double-edged sword, but on the one hand, I'm glad that there's recognition, and on the other hand, I feel like this, this is like the, the problem that we have with any of these things, right, is that the people who are most likely to listen to us and most likely to um, understand and put things in motion, they're already on board. They, they're already paying attention. They already understand. The people that most need to hear it are just like, oh, why isn't there a man's day or a man's mother <laughs> or, or, or whatever is else? racism.
1: People. Yeah, all that shit. <laughs> you know,
2: or, or, or they go like, you know, I'll see people like share things like, you know, happy International Women's Day. But then there'll be a researcher who you know, like only publishes with um, co-authors who are men or they'll run a, a conference where it's like primarily speakers who are men or whatever else. So it becomes uh, like, like, even like more this kind insidious. of tokenization yeah. you know, where it's sort of like, here's your cookie. Now for the rest of the time, we're going to do what we want. Just, you know, I, I hope you have a nice day like, as if that's enough. And it's not act- used as a reminder of like, oh, we should be working with this like as just part of life. That, that, you know, bringing up this background level till we get to equity and equality and justice. And I think it's so that's the part that seems like maddeningly hard to get some people to understand because it often gets right into that defensiveness and is like, well, what about my day?
1: Yeah, and exhausting. I see it all the time on SGU when we get the really sexist emails and then you know, sometimes I have the patience to educate and other times I just get pissed and the guys are like, we got to use these as learning experiences. And I'm like, you don't know. You don't know what it's like. Like, I don't want to have to wear kid gloves every day. I don't want to have to massage egos. I don't want to have to coddle. I want to just be pissed. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, come on. And also- It's exhausting
2: right now being like a a trans person, especially because like, it's basically watching yourself be vivisected and, you know- magazines and you know on capitol hill and everyone's like people talking about your i mean the fact like how many politicians right now are referring to trans women because the focus is always on trans women and it's like i don't want trans mask people to be like drawn into this because they don't need the grief but the focus is so much on people like me and we're always referred to as biological males and like all these details of our bodies and our sexualities like put on public display but without our voices it's not a trans person saying like i'm going to share with this with you and the hope that you understand it's always a cis person talking about us and then we get to hear it and then we don't get our voices heard and that's the part that really like grinds me down after, or at least like i need to walk away from the computer and walk jet for a couple minutes and then come back to it
1: oh i can't i mean it's obviously i i feel feel great empathy but i have no idea what that's like and it sounds fucking exhausting
2: but i mean it's it's i really hate saying it but it's similar to what you know cis women had to deal with for so very long as well like in order to get the vote in order to get like anything even approaching equity and equality, like having iq levels and you know emotions and hormones and stuff like brought up like you know we're not bringing that up as directly anymore, but it's still the same kind of story where it's like the detail the biological details of who you are being used to determine your validity as a person, and that's the part that I think like in one way or another, a lot of people have either dealt with or can empathize with
1: so you know the second thing that comes up for me that I think speaks to exactly what we've been talking about is. How, would, how do you perceive and how do you kind of work with the spectrum of individuals to whom you are, you know, oftentimes forced to interact with? Um, there's the gamut. There's the individuals who are probably pretty social justice oriented who are anti-racist, who are, you know, celebrate inclusivity and maybe sometimes stumble. But you, you it's very clear if you're misgendered and they literally made a mistake that they're like, holy shit, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You've got the other end of the gamut, which are people who are, you know, burdened and put upon and angry about the fact that you exist. And they're transphobic. They're just fundamentally don't like you and 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 think that you shouldn't have rights. And then you've got these people in between who I often hear are like this sort of passive. and unfortunately, you know, it's like the the letter from a Birmingham jail version that Martin Luther King talked about about the white moderate and how sometimes the white moderate is more dangerous than the clanner because they would just prefer the status quo but they pretend like they're on your team. So these people who are kind of like, I don't get it. I'm just old. I'm sorry. Like, just, I'm sorry. I can't keep up with, are you a boy? Are you a girl? I don't, I just don't get it. And like, you know, dealing with those three kinds of buckets, I'm just wondering what your experience has been, what your approach is like. How do you make sense of that kind of world that you're having to navigate?
2: It's pretty much what you described. If somebody is just like very virulently and outwardly transphobic, I check out of that situation usually relatively early. Right, and um, it's not like, safe I usually,
1: for you to be in that situation. No
2: Absolutely, and and any further interaction kind of only kind of raises the the tension or the concern about that. You know, like block and report is basically my my response my response to that. And people who are generally on board and you know, like you know, might slip every every once in a while with you know, a dead name, gendering, or a you know, idea that's. Um, you know, not quite right. I generally feel like I'm able to say like, hey, like it's not a big deal, but just so you know, like you him like referring to me in, in, in email. Um, it'd mean a lot to me if you just, you know, kept, kept an eye on that. Um, and then usually, like, they are much more apologetic than I kind of need them to be <laughs> in a right, way. But yeah. that, that's actually the most difficult part of it, where it's kind of like, you're like, oh, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It's, I, I'm okay. I was right. This whole
1: thing. I wonder, and, sorry to interject, but I wonder yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. if the psychological process of being like, holy shit, I'm so fucking sorry, almost like you said some, you know, you're like, hey, Jennifer. And they're like, well, my name's Jamie. And you're like, oh shit, that like, if you really m- make it a bigger deal than it is, then it, has an emotional connotation attached to it. So now you're going to remember it more. Like, I don't know. I don't, I mean, and that's not even a justification, but I'm wondering if part of the reason that we as human beings are like overly sorry when things like that happen is because then it's like not making that mistake again because I've just burned myself on the stove.
2: Yeah, and and how much of it is, you know, those of us with anxiety high, um, how much of the, this is like a normal thought process, right? It's, it's like we remember the one small thing that went wrong and then everything else that was fine, like we don't hold on to, but we'll fixate on, like, I can't believe I said that word wrong. Oh, like, right. Like yeah, you publish an later.
1: article and you get 99% good feedback. And then the one person who's like, you're a dick. And you're like, no.
2: <laughs> right. And that's all it takes. It doesn't have to be like a cogent point. It's just yeah. someone like, I don't like you. But you're right. And that it's, it's usually the people in the middle is the most difficult, like, especially early on. And I'd hear this from folks who are older than me for the most part. It was um, well, we're trying. This is this is new. And part of it's like it takes it takes more assessment. Of, okay, like how do I want to respond to this? And those are the moments where I'm really weighing and Do I want to make this an educational moment or am I just too fucking tired right now? Uh you know, if I want to make an educational moment, I'm gonna say, like, okay, like I know that my change in identity is new. For You but transgender people have been around for basically as long as there have been people, and there are people have been medically transitioning since basically you know before World War II. So here's some resources on that if you would like to know more. I'm trying to like assume the best that they're feeling annoyed, but there's also like an interest or a bit of curiosity. If I can get at that part, then maybe it'll change. But I think outside of my personal Sphere where I have that kind of, I don't want to say kind of pull, but like I know people are more likely to listen because they're already invested in, you know, a friendship or an acquaintance or, or a connection. That's the stuff that makes me really worry. Like I mentioned, um, Abigail Schreier earlier, the fact that she has a book that was, you know, it sold at Target, you know, like all across the country was pulled and then put it back on the shelf. And of course, the controversy was more publicity. That this isn't a book that, you know, it's going to go to number one because of turfs or something or, um, That it's something that's going to reach people who are like, I hear there's controversy over transgender people. This seems like an interesting book to read about that subject. And they come away with entirely the wrong idea and perception Uh, about this because we don't know how to research. We don't, another thing we don't teach people is how to research and vet things and understand it. That, like, especially in journalism right now, and this could be, this is a whole other point that we have to get into because we have fossils and stuff to talk about too. But the fact that (laughs) how many articles, about trans and queer and non-binary people are written by cisgender people because there's a belief that that's inherently more objective. Oh these it's people so are disgusting. kind of busting. Yes. And I feel like that's something where in you know, sort of the writing and journalism world, like people still don't get that. They still don't understand that because they coming from the standpoint, it's like, well, if you're trans, you're kind of just advocating yourself. It's like this person is like doxing the people that they talk about. How is that?
1: okay? <laughs> right. And um, I think I see it a lot in the skeptic movement. Like we'll get emails from people who are like, I heard Jordan Peterson tell a talk about how there's not really 250 gender. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Or like, you know, I heard from Richard Dawkins or I heard from Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. And it's like, y- you don't realize that just because these people are people that within your community you look up to for certain points, that there are fundamental problems with value judgments here that these are individuals who are known transphobes or individuals who are known sexists and you're looking at them as if they're objective.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And and that plays into it's like, well, since they're not part of that community, they must have a better and more objective understanding of it. Right. And Ugh. if that's the case, it's like, how do you possibly argue against that?
1: Right, because it goes back to the fundamental problem, which I discussed a few weeks ago, Um, Um, when I had an individual who is a uh, feminist philosopher on the show and uh, who wrote um, Think Like a Feminist, Carol Hay, and talked about her experience because she's married to a trans man. And and we talked about TERFs and we talked about all of this. But what it came down to at, at its core was this fundamental belief that's very hard to shake that the cis, white, Protestant, straight man is the norm and everything else is the other.
2: Mm-hmm. And the entitlement that comes with that, the entitlement yeah. to know about, like, not what we're willing to share, but invasively know about our bodies and what they're like, what they do. It's like, you know, do I know you? Did you buy me a drink? Are you asking me out? <laughs> right? No? Yeah. Then, then leave me the fuck alone. Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're so right. And you, you see it time and time again, those cringeworthy um, interviews on like talk shows where it's like so how do you have sex and they're like wow i can't believe you just asked me that like in public like in front of all these people i'm not answering that what are you even talking about how do you have sex
2: (laughs) exactly (laughs) Exactly. let's talk about what that word means to yeah
1: like what are all of your kinks i'd love to hear about them on air in front of everyone like no
2: come on. Yes, I'm, I'm sure, you know, 13 minutes of intercourse at 10 o'clock at night on Saturday weekly <laughs> is very exciting for you. <laughs> there is a greater world out there.
1: Oh my God. I love it. I love it. So, so anyway, Riley, so, I mean, there's so much more that we could, we could get into yes. and maybe, maybe more things will come up in the next kind of 15 minutes as we're talking, but if not, that's okay. Because as you mentioned, you've written some, some pieces that are, I think really, really important and I'll link to them in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um in the meantime, though, I'd love to talk bones. I'd love to talk fossils. Yeah. I'd love to talk dinos. You know, I see, I again, I see your byline a lot. I know that you're writing for all of these incredible outlets that a lot of my listeners listen to. Anytime something comes up in my feed reader that you've authored, I um, I often share it. So you probably see that I often share your pieces on social media. Um, what's What's kind of the newest and the juiciest for you that you've been able to sink your teeth into? What have you really enjoyed writing lately?
2: Well, first I'll say that I won't make you wait another six years to come back. So we'll have plenty of time to talk about other stuff if we we need to. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So some of the things that I've been writing about, lately, like one of the really neat paleo things, it was neat to see it quantified because this has been an idea that's been, and there's finally a paper that gets at the mechanics of this. So when we think about the Hell Creek Formation, so we think about like the time of like T-Rex and Triceratops and stuff, ancient Montana and the Dakotas, 66 million years ago, you don't have a lot of medium-sized carnivores. You have a lot of very small, like raptor-like, kind of little nippy carnivore-type things. And then you basically have T-Rex, and T-Rex just dominates everything. And that's kind of weird, because when you look at other dinosaur habitats, like other ecologies, you have small carnivores, and you've got your like mid-class carnivores, and you've got your gigantic carnivores, and they kind of fill the whole ecosystem. In Hell Creek, that's not, its basically T Rex is running the show, and it seems that the way that as dinosaurs grew up, they changed so dramatically that if there's a skeleton called Jane, that's a teenage T Rex, a thirteen-year-old like T Rex with a long, shallow skull, and these like the teeth seem really long because the skull is so small. Then you compare that to an adult, and the skull—skull—the the adult is like really deep and really like kind of burly looking, and it's, looks like an entirely different animal.
1: Right. Here in LA, have you seen, sorry to interject, here in LA, there's this really great T-Rex growth series at the Museum of Natural History that I've always loved. Always. It's, you know, it was only probably came up like 10 years ago, Um, but I've always really loved it because it shows, you know, a young T-Rex, a juvenile, or like a teenage T-Rex, and then an adult T-Rex, and how historically we didn't know, are these different species? Now we kind of think, okay, these are just growth stages. And it really speaks to that detective work of paleontology of like, we got a few bones. We got to make sense of what's going on in the lifespan, in the ecosystem, in the, you know, just from a taxonomic perspective. um, There's so many of these cool questions and complicated issues in paleo that I think we often think it's old and it's dusty and we just know everything about it. You get a tooth because that's how it's related in, in Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. literature, right? It's like, or in, in, Oftentimes in old school um, science communication, like we found a tooth. We know it's from an ankylosaur and it was this age and this is when it lived and case closed. And it's like, oh, really? From a tooth?
2: <laughs> right. And that's how we communicate. We communicate yeah. like what we consider the facts of it, but not like the process or other right, uh, right. things are going like you've got 500 words to make sense of all this. It's like, oh, God, how am I going to do this? But <laughs> in this particular case, it's really neat because like you said, this came out of all these different realizations that like, oh, these are not different species. These are growth stages of one animal that are acting kind of like different species. Mm-hmm. So they're filling different niches in the same environment and basically shouldering out any competition. So you have less species diversity because oh, cool. one species is acting like three.
1: And so is and it because so, the lifespan is like, long? Like how, how old did T-Rexes get? Do we have any idea?
2: They got the oldest ones that we know were about 33 years old. Died.
1: Okay. So kind of like, you know. Well, people's lifespan has always been long, but because of disease mm-hmm. and stuff, there were eras. But, but where that's we... not a bad
2: comparison yeah. because like yeah. T-Rex got, see, it, was, it was kind of this like very awkward, gangly, like fuzzy, like we've all gone through our awkward teenage phase. T-Rex had one <laughs> yeah. as well until about 15. And then they go through this growth spray. It's kind of like, remember those old like Charles Atlas ads where it's like the kind of like 90 pound weakling. And then if you work <laughs> out using my method, it's basically <laughs> that kind of transformation. Where it's going from this like tiny awkward little thing into all of a sudden you get like nine tons of oh, carnivore that can like, crunch Jesus. bone. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that can eat the lawyer right off of the uh, porta potty.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. So yeah, the, <laughs> so this this was study quantified that in in It kind of made sense of this, like okay, yeah, like this species is really kind of shouldering out other competitors and even other habitats where there are. Medium-sized carnivores—they're relatively rare. So it seems that these giant dinosaur species, things like Allosaurus and T-Rex and Carcaridonosaurus and all you know, our other favorites—that they, you know, since they hatched out of these little eggs and they had to grow up into animals that could be you know, 40 feet long and you know, nine tons—that through those growth stages, that they basically took up so much ecological space. That there wasn't much room for other things to evolve, so it's not like the African savanna today, where you have a whole bunch of lions and a whole bunch of bat-eared foxes and spotted hyenas and things like that, and it's relative. Everybody's relatively well represented. It was very uneven,
1: right? Mesozoic, if, and that's kind of weird. It's as if lions had these long stages where you had the lion kittens, and then you had the lion teenagers, and then you had the lion adults, and they they took up the space of like you said, the hyenas or the leopards or the cheetahs.
2: Yeah. So that that was one of the, the neat things. I wrote that for um, New Scientist based out of the UK. So that's up on their website. And then one of the other things that I've been working on, and this should come out um, shortly, uh, cool. is about this. I, I need to be a little bit <laughs> mama. Like, I can give, give you the outline. It's right, about a right. fossil shark that was found in Mexico. And it seems to have almost like manta ray-like pectoral fins. And this will come out this week in science. And it was basically this filter feeder that had this combination of propulsion that's never been seen before. Right. It had like kind of like a shark-like body that could kind of swish its tail back and forth and kind of propel it forward. But they could also like flap with these big manta-like. Oh wow! Nobody has ever seen a shark like this.
1: And is this like it's clearly a shark, or is it one maybe maybe a precursor to shark? You know, because sharks and rays are pretty related, aren't they?
2: Yeah, they're they're relatively closely related to Mm -hmm. each other. They're part of the part of the same group of animals called elasmobranchs. So I think rays split off from like an archaic form of of shark Mm -hmm. sometime Mm -hmm. during prehistory. So this is something that the authors of the paper are proposing. That it's a shark and that it's a shark that's acting like a whale shark or a basking shark with just these big kind of flappy wings on it. But right. some of the other researchers that I spoke to and reported in this piece said, like, I'm not entirely sure that it is a shark or maybe that all these pieces go together. They're, this is the problem that we have with some of these papers that come out in like major journals like Nature and Science and that. They seem very dramatic and they hit, you know, very hard as kind of like we found something that's never been seen before and it looks like this. But when you go into the supplemental information where the data is, there aren't always good photographs or good figures. And that seems to be the case here With like, if this is true, nobody has seen a shark like this before. But there are some questions about this that we need either another one or like more intensive study to really be sure. And that's the stuff I'm trying to include that in my reporting because I feel like we often don't say that with oh, scientists I often like we find a new thing, put it on the shelf. And I think it's worth saying, like, this could be really cool. But there's a whole bunch of reasons that it might not actually exist.
1: Right. And even if it did exist, there's often those questions, too, about coming back to that conversation we were having before about taxonomy and where does it fit? And is it is it a ray like shark? Is it a shark like ray? I mean, maybe not in this situation, but I I long struggled with that with um, with. Archaeopteryx. That's why I love Archaeopteryx mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, I get it. It's a bird. People talk about it like it's a bird. But in my view, it's a dinosaur. Damn it. Like I've always held on to it as a <laughs> dinosaur because it's sort of both. And that's really cool. Exactly.
2: <laughs> well, I remember it, and it's so difficult communicating this sometimes because I've tried to tackle this in some of my writing and I've asked paleontologists about it, where if you ask a paleontologist, okay, why it like what makes a dinosaur a dinosaur or what makes a bird a bird? Or you can you know do this with the almost any group. And if you ask the dinosaur question and say, "Okay, well, dinosaurs seem to share a certain number of specific anatomical traits with each other that other animals don't." Okay, I, I can get that. There's a certain like crest on the humerus or the upper arm bone. The hip sockets are arranged a certain way. I can get that. The problem is like sometimes through evolution those traits change or you know they're not the same. So the ancestor had it, but the descendant doesn't. It's still a dinosaur, though. So, like, okay, that's not a foolproof method to do this. The other way to do it is to look at the family tree and say everything between basically a triceratops and a pigeon, if you trace those back to the last common ancestor, everything that falls in between is a dinosaur. And that's also kind of unsatisfying in its way because then, like, if you don't know at the outset what all the different families and everything else is, it's very hard to visualize so this is like where we get into the philosophy of science and systematics and all this stuff where it really can be a challenging thing to communicate. And, you know, Archaeopteryx is a great example because we recognize it as the first bird mm-hmm. because it was described as the first bird. We basically said, OK, we're making this the first bird.
1: Yeah.
2: If another animal had been found with very similar traits and we've got them, we've got them like an even older set of Those probably would have been named as the first bird, and kind of what our metric is would have been different. And this doesn't mean that the whole thing, like, doesn't make any sense, but there is a kind of arbitrary nature to some of these things, or at least historical reasons for some of this. So when people are expecting this biological answer of, like, we know it is because it has feathers, or, you know, the answer someone might want, it really has to do with, like, well, like, at the time this thing seemed to be like right in the middle. So we just kind of took it from there.
1: Yeah, you know, and it it, it speaks to those kind of longstanding internet wars about like, well, birds are dinosaurs, clearly. Or like, a taco is a sandwich, goddammit. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> that's a whole box we're not going to open up today. So, so Riley, um, you know, there's, there's so much more that we could talk about. But before sort of I close it up because we're getting, we're getting close to the hour. I'm wondering, you know, before I ask you my closing two questions that I always ask, I'm wondering what is sort of on the horizon for you now? Any big projects or are they all secret? You know, like, is there anything you can share with us about kind of where you're at and what you're doing?
2: Yeah, I'm working on a lot of different projects for a lot of different publications right now. I'm working on a piece for Sierra about, um, Natural history in, in the West, specifically relating to Utah's national monument, like Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, the ones that Trump cut. But why that happened, that, why that wasn't a decision that he made, but speaks to this kind of land war mentality that's existed since the time that the Mormons settled in Salt Lake, this kind of idea of the Sagebrush Rebellion. So that's something that will be out in a few months.
1: Cool. So there's um, a lot of like history of science and history of just like politics in this. An yeah, and they all
2: in- inform each other. Yeah, it's it's not just sort of the bones in the ground, but like, why is this ground so so contested? And then I'm writing a piece for Smithsonian about, just since we were talking about fossil sharks before, about strange fossil sharks, things like Helicoprion that had that buzzsaw, like lower jaw. I Another remember
1: one called, that yeah. discovery. Yeah, it was, yeah, it
2: was really neat. <laughs> Another one called um, Edestus that looks like it was like pinking shears for jaws. Like, why did things seem so much weirder? You know, like 250 million years ago. Right. So and so
1: much more badass. Things. Why did everything look like this barbaric, like, tool back in the day? Right. and
2: not I'll give you so like so. a spoiler for it. Like, okay. we actually have more disparity or more different kinds of jaw shapes now. It's just since those are so different, we think of that time as so much odder
1: uh, than yeah. it really
2: was. There actually are more varieties of like shark, and right, and stuff like swimming around now. But, but because they're here now, we don't appreciate them
1: Right, there's a normalcy to them. So we don't yes. see them as aberrant or different.
2: Yes, terms. and then the big thing is I'm writing a book about, uh, and hopefully this will come out in winter of next year, about if you were to stand in the Hill Creek Formation that we were talking about a few minutes ago, 66 million years ago when that asteroid struck the Yucatan, what would you experience in the second, the hour, the day, the week, the month, the year, and so on, like after that impact? Like how would you see the environment around? change so it's trying to put the reader in that environment as much as possible it's kind of, I describe it as like the forest unseen but on fire66 yeah. <laughs> million years ago yeah and, and that's what I'm hoping to wrap up now and I'm really excited about that because it's it's using science to tell a more narrative story and really put you in this place and not just talk mm-hmm. facts and figures and velocities and things like that but like what did this mean for this environment and how it was this? basically the worst day the worst single day the earth has ever had or life on earth has had and then this recovery that came after it so it's kind of like the dinosaurs and their destruction is the hook but it's really a story about life's resilience
1: well that sounds fascinating i can't wait to read that you better hurry up and write that so i can read it riley
2: <laughs> I'll send you a sample of it.
1: Yeah, very cool, very cool. Oh, I love it. So I don't know if you remember back when you were on the show, but mm-hmm. we always closed each episode by asking the guests the same two big picture questions. So I'm going to pose them to you again. I have no idea what you said the first time because dumb me didn't think to go back and look. Um, I, maybe. I
0: don't it, okay,
1: good, good, good. I was like, maybe it'd be interesting to compile this in the future. This is a project for another day.
2: Well, a different but, person now, right? So it'll be interesting to compare and contrast.
1: Absolutely. So. <laughs> (laughs) So Riley, when you think about the future in whatever context is relevant to you right now, whether it's personal, whether it's global, whether it's cosmic, I'm wondering first, what is the thing that's keeping you up the most at night? The thing that's really worrying you, you know, where you might even feel a bit pessimistic about it. And on the flip side, what are you genuinely hopeful for? What are you, you know, optimistic about? What are you truly looking forward to?
2: I think the thing that keeps me up at night the most is climate change and just knowing how much like looking at the prehistoric past, these moments where we've had these spikes and how long they last and the effects that they have, where it's like we're, we're just moving too slow for what we know is, is coming down. I'm really hoping that that can change, but it's something that it's so big that it's hard to feel like, can I even do anything about this? So that's what's keeping me up at, at, at night in, in that sense. In a positive sense, I think it relates back to what you said before that, like, through this struggle that we're having right now about gender and identity and being queer and biology and what all that means, basically what it means to be human in many of these aspects, that that is changing. It's going to change in the picture 10, 20, 30 years from now is going to be very different. That I'm going to meet people who, you know, at, you know, like age 55, or say, so, like, you know what? I wasn't really sure I was happy with my gender. I decided to experiment with it. My friends are really supportive. I decided to keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm really glad that I did that. And I learned a lot. Like, those are the sorts of stories I think we're going to of. And I think are just going to increase our empathy for each other and really expand um, the expression that we have as, as people. So that's what I'm really hopeful for.
1: There's going to be a time in the future where we meet people who are like 55 and we say, when did you know you were trans? They're like, oh, I was like four or five. And so when did you? Oh, yeah, I've just always been trans. Like, this is oh, just yeah, my identity. I already get
2: the feelings of like, back in my day. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> it's already happening.
1: <laughs> we're old, Riley. <laughs> you know. <laughs> shh, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, Riley, thank you so much for being on the show today. I mean, it was, as always, a massive pleasure, but I'm so glad that we were able to
2: reconnect. Oh, this is always so much fun. Thank you for asking me
1: course. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.